Coming to you live from our secret base on the moon, it's the Dockiverse Podcast. Episode 89. Three cute chicks and a fat guy in drag. In this episode, we've got a monster movie review, connected pulp characters, and the GM's toolkit. So now, let's get things started. No, no, you can't open a window. There's no air out there. Hello there, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Doc Cross, and it is, as I record this, June 3rd. It is about uh, 1.30 in the afternoon, and it's quite warm outside. Not super hot, but it's uh, up in the 80s. We're trying not to use the air conditioner too often, so if you hear fans in the background, that's uh, the municipal electric district and my solar panels on a roof, saving me money from the gas that is required to run the air conditioner, and which is provided by PG&E, who are evil, vile, murderous bastards, and they screw you on energy costs. Okay, that was a little rant. I'm sorry. Anyway, I want to thank you all for being here. And I hope you had a good week. This episode should finish off the month of June. And that's pretty wild for me. That means we're a month into year number two. It also means that we are only 11 shows away from my 100th show, which I still don't know what the hell I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something interesting. And speaking of interesting, have I told you about my wonderful patrons over on Patreon? They are great. They pledge money every month that comes to me and allows me to do things. Right now, the money is being divided halfway towards going to Dundracon and hopefully KublaCon next year. Because I usually don't have enough money to go to KublaCon, but I'm trying to save up in advance. And the other half of the money is going towards other things, possibly a new computer. Not sure. But right now, let me thank them. Thank you, Marion, Mark, Kevin, Jane, Peter, Bruce, and Avis. You guys are the tops. You're the cream of the crop. Love y'all. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And now we move on to our monster movie review. And our theme has been Plants That Eat People. And this is number three in that little series. And it is titled... The Navy versus the Night Monsters. The Navy versus the Night Monsters, also known as Monsters of the Night and the Night Crawlers, is a 1966 independently made American science fiction monster film. It was produced by Jack Broder and Roger Corman, although he's not credited. It was written and directed by Michael A. Hoey, and it stars Mamie Van Doren. Anthony Isley, Billy Gray, and Bobby Van. Let me tell you about those last two names. Bobby Van was a famous singer, you know, heartthrob, whatnot. Not top of the tier, but he was up there. And Billy Gray was the son 
on Father Knows Best. And if you're old enough to remember Father Knows Best, you're damned old. You're like me. The film was distributed by Real Art Pictures Incorporated. Folks, this is not your top-tier science fiction movie. It is, by turns, funny and scary and has not-so-great special effects but still manages to pull off a few chills and thrills. And it's got Mamie Van Doren and her two heaving bosoms running around through it. So there's that for some of you guys who like the heaving bosoms. And girls. A lot of girls like heaving bosoms. Actually, I'm a fan of heaving bosoms. Anyway, let's get on to the plot. The dull, workaday life at a small American Navy weather station based on Gao Island in the South Pacific is interrupted by the pending arrival of a C-47 transport for refueling. Aboard the aircraft are a team of scientists, an Air Force flight crew, and a cargo of specimens from their completed expedition to the Antarctic. Okay, you all know anytime anybody in one of these movies goes to the Antarctic, or way up in the Arctic, or deep in the jungle, or way to fuck out in a desert, or any place that people don't normally live, shit gets real because they find something they shouldn't find. Something's frozen, something gets thawed out, something gets planted, something gets fed the wrong damn thing, and next thing you know, you got a monster running around. Anyway, on final approach, something moving in the cargo area unbalances the aircraft. I, yeah, I don't think so. The crewman sent to investigate returns screaming, and he jumps to his death. Okay, yeah, uh uh-huh. At the naval base, the transport radio transmits sounds of screaming and shots fired, and the descending plane suddenly weaves, veers, and crash lands on the jungle island's single airstrip, destroying the control tower and the island's only two-way radio. My, my, isn't that convenient. The damaged aircraft also blocks the runway, preventing its further use. Also convenient. Lieutenant Charles Brown, I might not have used that name, played by Anthony Isley, is in command of Gao's weather station. He, Navy nurse Nora Hall, played by Mamie Van Doren, and biologist Arthur Beecham, played by Walter Sand, reach the wreck only to find that the scientists and most of the crew are now mysteriously missing. The only one aboard is the C-47's pilot, who is traumatized and in a state of shock, unable to speak. The cargo consists primarily of a few penguins, plus several prehistoric trees taken from the frozen tundra. Dun-dun-dun! So they unload the cargo. Dr. Beecham, like a fucking idiot, recommends planting the trees to ensure their survival on the island's tropical conditions, and why the fuck should they survive on tropical conditions when, in fact, they're from the Antarctic? Little scientific flaw there. And that night, a storm ravages the island because not enough shit has happened to them. And somewhat later, the bird population becomes disturbed by something unknown. The weather station scientists try to figure out a connection between the events and a corrosive residue that begins turning up at various island locations. And nobody thinks about the trees, right? Maybe it's the damn penguins. Who knows? So what happened is they slowly realize that the prehistoric trees 
have grown into acid-secreting, carnivorous monsters that move about the island at night, hence night monsters. They reproduce fast, and he will eventually cut off the island with their growing numbers and their nocturnal assaults for food. And if the people would just get off the damn island, these things will eventually eat everything on it and die. But nobody thinks about that. Me, I'd be on a boat, set off the edge of the island for a while, eat some fish, drink some fresh water or whatnot, wait for them to kill themselves. But I'm getting ahead of the plot of the movie here. So there's a lot of stuff that happens in there. They don't have much weapons. The weapons don't work very well. Uh, they find out, guess what? Fire is the only thing that will destroy them because they're trees. And uh, the weather station is able to restore contact. I know one guy gets his arm ripped off. Uh, Mamie Van Dorn gets you know, menaced at some point. And then fighter jets come in and they napalm the island and fire air-to-ground missiles at the slowly moving night monsters, setting them ablaze, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm not spoiling the movie for you. It, it, it's a low-budget science fiction movie. It's not bad. It's not as bad as it sounds, and not as bad as I make it sound, but it's never going to win the Academy Awards. Now, apparently, according to the producer and the director, the whole deal with this was that, first of all, the script got changed. Second of all, they spent money on special effects that weren't that great. And he wanted to make the film, the producer wanted to make the film back-to-back with another film, Women of the Prehistoric Planet. And he wanted to use the same crew and a whole bunch of stuff. Then shooting took 10 days, and they had a movie, and it got uh, an okay reception. Now, about the special effects, which I mentioned earlier, uh, the producer wouldn't hire the guy that they originally had the meeting with, a guy who could have done a better job. He wanted monster trees to look like other trees so that there wouldn't be a feeling that they stood out like sore thumbs. That would have been a good idea. But apparently, the cheap-ass producer hired some guy who made really crappy trees and pissed off the director, and there was just a whole bunch of stuff going on back behind the scenes, which is why most of the trees' movement is filmed at night, so maybe you won't notice how goofy and cheap these monsters look. There were some post-production reshoots because Broder, the producer, wanted a 90-minute film so he could sell it to television, and Hoey's original cut came in at 78 minutes. And Hoey left the film, and Broder hired another director, Arthur Prince, the director of Women of the Prehistoric Planet, to shoot additional scenes. And Hoey later claimed that these scenes would change the whole premise of the film, saying he added all those scenes of those Navy officers in that base on the mainland. And yeah, those stick out like a sore thumb when you watch the movie. And it completely ruined the premise of what Hoey had in mind. And Isley, the guy who started the movie, agreed with Hoey that it just screwed the pooch. So anyway, that is Navy versus the Night Monsters. It is a movie that, if you can find it, and it's probably, I'm pretty sure, it's on uh, 
YouTube. It's probably out there in other areas. And if you get a chance to watch it, go ahead and do it. And don't expect anything too great, but it's not a bad little movie. You know, could have been better, apparently. And that is our monster movie review for this time around. And in two weeks, we will have, I think, the last of the trees that eat people. And I'm not sure what we're going to do next. Well, folks, what we're going to do next right here now is Connected Pulp Characters. And this time, we've got a couple from south of the border. And these are two characters who have interacted with the ones we mentioned before, the Green Monster and Tarakas. And this time, we have La Mujer Fantasma, the Ghost Woman, and her trusty companion, Pero Demonio, known as Demon Dog, or PD. Now, La Mujer Fantasma is not a villain. She is a hero. She has the power to make herself intangible. She can't interact with solid objects, but she can move through walls, walk through a person, whatever. And generally speaking, south of the border, where, you know, they're pretty heavily Catholic, this scares the shit out of people, and evildoers avoid her like the plague. Her dog, P.D., is a sort of a pit bull, mastiff cross, is big. He's got a power of his own, and that is the power to breathe fire and to cause his eyes to glow like he's on fire. And he can also run very, very fast. This, this dog can hit like 50 miles an hour for a good stretch. So, again, south of the border, these are the crime fighters to fear. When they come north of the border, people don't know who they are. They're able to be just a woman and her big-ass dog, and they're able to find things out, and then they're able to put on the costumes and get the evil guys. Now, La Mujer Fantasma, nobody knows her name. She has a secret identity somewhere, but that's up to you as GM to figure out. What she does is go out at night, but sometimes also in the day, and take care of these crimes and these bad guys, often in a very public place. She wants the word to get around that La Mujer Fantasma cannot be hurt by bullets, but when she becomes solid, her own two pistolas, yeah, they're deadly. And the dog, oh, just fuck the dog. The dog is crazy. The dog is big. The dog can breathe fire. That's all you need to know. It's a demon dog. So a very effective crime fighter and her canine companion. Now, how would they interact with your adventuring party? Well... It could be that you're south of the border. She works mostly Mexico, but she comes over the border into our border states. She also goes down into Central America from time to time. She's even been known to pop up in Europe, Spain, Italy, Portugal, you know, those countries. 
sometimes even as far up as, you know, the UK. So perhaps you just are down there and you hear about her and you think, hey, Al, we're investigating this. Maybe she knows something. Let's go see if we can find her. Well, first of all, if nobody knows her secret identity, you're not going to get to her that way. And because she doesn't come out during the day except to, or night to scare the hell out of people and fight crime, you've kind of got to wait around and, you know, encounter her. Once you do, if she knows you work for a particular organization or maybe she's seen your characters talked about in the news, then she might very well help you. If you're fighting crime or if you're aiding the oppressed people or if you're trying to find lost treasure, which will then go back to the oppressed people, yeah, she's all for it. You could also be, your characters could also be, from a group that wants to find out how the hell does she become immaterial? What's, what's her, where does this come from? Now, you could also say, as GM, that she was born with these powers. That's what I would do. She's just a mutant. So is the dog. And the dog is probably of human intelligence. Or you could say she's got some sort of device that's implanted in her and the dog. Or she drinks a potion or any number of things that affect her and the dog. Now, that's one thing. You're trying to find her and you want to study her. Well, odds are she really doesn't want to be studied. And pretty sure the dog doesn't want to be studied either. But, you know, maybe you can convince them. Then there's also, if your players are in a jam down south, maybe the villains have them cornered or something, she might well show up and kick their asses and blow them away because she's got those pistols. And then she'd free your characters, and then that would be the encounter right there. In other countries, you may well be telling your characters, you know, she came here and she killed a bunch of gangsters, and that's a good thing, but it is murder, so you're going to have to go find her. Well, there you go. Are they really going to find her? Are they going to come back and tell their bosses, we couldn't get her, she's immaterial, she's like a ghost? Well, that's up to them. Anyway, that is La Mujer Fantasma and Pero Demonio, and I hope you can use them in your adventures. And next time, we'll have a couple more. Okay, folks, it is time for the GM's Toolkit. And this time, our theme is, what is time? Now, I don't mean what is time in the sense that a physicist would mean it. I mean, what happens in your campaign or your series where uh, the players aren't doing anything? You know, what happens if you have to take a month off? Or what happens if, in-game, your characters get thrown in jail for a month or six months or a year? Or they get lost on some island or they're just down in a dungeon for three weeks? Does life change outside? Does time go on? If they're gone from their hometown for four or five years on some massive adventure, when they come home, has little Johnny grown up and he, now he's a teenager? Has the church burned down? Has the, the inn shut down, been replaced by one that's not nearly as good? What 
what happens while your characters are doing other stuff? Does time pass? Does the world go on? The other way to talk about this is, do you care? I mean, I've run a lot of games where I really didn't keep track of time. Now, back in the early days at D&D, they had all sorts of rules. Well, you got to keep track of time. You know, they got to eat every so often, or this is going to happen, or that's going to happen, or they got to do this, and they got to take eight hours sleep to get, you know, the spells back or whatever, or heal up or whatever they were doing. Um, I never was a big sticker on time. I'm still not a big sticker on time. I will just say, you know, I'll think about what people have done, and I'll say, yeah, okay, uh, you were down in the dungeon for four days, or you were exploring the mountains for three weeks, or, you know, the judge is going to give you 30 days in jail because you started a fight in a bar. And then, you know, we pass that. Sometimes it's just I write it off real quick. I just say, so you do your 30 days and, you know, everything's fine. And maybe they meet somebody in the jail that uh, can give them some information. Or maybe they help a guy. So now that guy owes them something. And then they're out of jail and they're on the way. Another thing about time in a game is do you allow time travel? Now, this should be a whole other you know, episode of the GM's Toolkit, and it probably will be. But do you allow time travel? And if you do, can they change the future? Can they change the past? Can they do whatever? Does traveling in time allow them to alter the world? Last one I ran, yeah, they altered the world several times, actually. So that's my discussion of time in role-playing games. I don't know how you handle it, but it's worth thinking about how the world might change while your guys are gone. You know, maybe their friend, the king, gets deposed and his asshole son takes over. And when they come back after being gone for umpteen years, they find out that the monarch is no longer quite their good buddy and their patron and they gotta start looking around for somebody else and maybe the son even dislikes them because hey my father liked them so I've got to hate them but that's time how you use it when you use it how meticulous you are about it it's up to you and speaking of time it is now time for me to say goodbye and end this episode. It's time for me to thank you all for listening, and I do thank you. It's time for me to say that if you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Dockiverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com. If you're listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail, and you Delightful patrons on Patreon can leave a message right there on the Patreon page. They will send me an email, and I'll get back to you ASAP. If you would like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts weeks before they go up on Anchor, go to www.patreon.com forward slash Doc Cross and pledge as little as a dollar a month 
and you'll get to listen to the podcast. You'll get some extra stuff like the Duckpedia Death March. Uh, there's some PDFs and stuff. They may require a little more than a buck a month, but they're out there. If you would like to make a one-time donation, you can just go over to my Ko-fi page. That's K-O-F-I. And look for Doc Cross 4591. That's me. And then you can go on. I think the minimum pledge is three bucks. Not sure. Uh, if you can adjust it down to whatever you want or adjust it up, go right ahead. And I will thank you. If you would like to sponsor or advertise on this podcast, get in touch with me by any of the methods I just mentioned. Our music was Blues Blast by John DeLay off of Google Music. This podcast and everything on it, except the music, is copyright 2022 by Doc Cross. I'll be seeing all of you next time. Until then, live long and prosper.